Heavenly Father, thank you for your words. Thank you for the book of Titus that we've been through briefly over the last few weeks. Thank you for all the practical wisdom and godliness and the importance of protecting your truth. And we pray now as we look at these final uh, words that you'd uh, help us to think through how we can live well for you, help us to think through uh, our faith in you and uh, your love for us through Jesus and help us to bring glory to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, uh, chapter one, we saw how important it was to protect the truth of God's word, for it's the truth that leads to godliness. Uh, so Titus 1, verse 1, uh, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. In other words, uh, God saves us by his own free will, his grace, his mercy, he elects, and our godliness doesn't save us, but it is uh, a fruit of salvation. Because we are saved, we will live lives that lead to godliness. And it's through protecting the truth, knowing the truth, that that happens. Chapter 2 made the same point. So chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. Uh, For the grace of God has appeared, so Jesus is first appearing, that offers salvation to all people. What does that do? It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. Our salvation in Jesus teaches us godliness in the present age. And then the rest of chapter two describes that, what that godliness looks like primarily in relationships uh, to other Christians. So older men to younger men, older women to younger women within a church context. Chapter three then continues this exact same theme uh, of our need to live godly lives informed by the truth, the word and sound doctrine because we are saved. Uh, Only the main application in this chapter is to how we behave towards those outside the church, uh, so our governments and society. And then alongside that, uh, we have a more in-depth theological basis for that proper behaviour. So uh, on the screen, hopefully, uh, are the three points we're looking at. Demonstrating our godliness, verse 1 and 2, so towards the government and towards society. Our theological basis for godliness, verses 3 to 8. And then Paul's final comment. We're not going to go into that last little section, I'm afraid, and find out about Paul's winter, wintering home. Uh, wherever that was, I'm sure it was very nice. Um, but uh, we will look at his final comments that he summarises just before that. Uh, so that's where we're going today. So number one, demonstrating our godliness, verse one and two. Have a look at verse one and two of Titus three. Remind the people to be subject to their rulers and authorities, to be obedient to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always be gentle toward everyone. Uh, The most natural reading of this verse uh, gives us these two general principles. Number one, Christians should be obedient, subject to our authorities and rulers. Today, we'd probably think of governments, uh, in our our culture, governments, the judicial system, and those that enforce uh, those things. Secondly, uh, Christians should be good, non-slanderers, peaceable and considerate and gentle towards everybody in society. Okay, they're the two things that seem to come out of this verse. It's perhaps not an untimely reminder for us, is it? Particularly that first one. After a year in which our government has had to make some tough and at oftentimes very unpopular decisions. Uh, not only have those regulations that they've put in place over the last year to protect us from COVID being controversial socially and relationally, 
uh, but it's also caused churches and church leaders to deeply consider uh, what is right before God in this situation in terms of meeting together for fellowship and encouragement and sermons on a Sunday, for example. Even here now, probably in this room, some of us will feel the government uh, was way too restrictive on our freedoms uh, and contradictory in its policies and undermined the word of God uh, and his command for a church to meet together. Others, probably here in this room, will feel the government was far too relaxed and should have been much firmer and that they and the freedom that they've given to the church over the last year have actually been unbiblical from a point of view of protecting life and loving one another. And both views have some traction in scripture. Both will find support in and out of the church. Both views will be able to pick holes in the government's handling of things. Both views will be able to make judgments on how the church, our church and all churches, have handled the whole situation. Now it is right and it is essential to think deeply about God's rule over and above our government's rule. Uh, to discuss and to think and to pray hard about the matters that we have faced and will continue to face this year and as we go forward and other, other events that will happen in the future. But, uh, once, but in one sense, this reminder in Titus 3 uh, is actually a very freeing reminder that we see for Christians. You see, according to this verse, we as Christians, as the church, are not responsible for solving and deciding every action that is to be taken from events such as COVID. We're not to be judging and working out whether everything was right or wrong at every stage uh, and every decision that the government has made over this last year. We're being given one really simple reminder, and that's to be subject to our government. So like it or not, so long as there isn't a direct or a sort of deliberate attack on the instructions given in scripture by our government, I use the word attack deliberately, uh, because I think if the government this year had said to churches, uh, as a direct attack on our faith, right, we no longer want you meeting, we'd have seen a very different response from, our, from the church across this country and, and across the world, if that was the case. But so long as there's no direct attack or deliberate attack on the instructions of God's word to God's people from our governments, then the godly response, whether we like what they're saying or not, is to be subject to them. We obey them. We choose to be subject to them. Uh, have a look. I think these verses are on the screen. Paul goes much further in Romans 13 uh, on the same topic, same, same Paul uh, writing this. Uh, verse 1 to 5, yeah. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Bear in mind the context Paul's writing in, the government situation is far less Christian than ours today. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authorities is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, do, uh, right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be and you will sorry. Then do what is right, and you will be commended, not condemned. <laughs> for the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They're there to execute justice. point. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment to the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of 
possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. Our government, whether we like them or not, whether they change hands between parties or not at the next election, is a gracious gift from God to all people. We do not have to work through all the impossible decisions and plans and restrictions that they've put in place on us on COVID. We don't have to think through the entire judicial system for them. As a church, we're called to do one thing, and that's to be subject to our government. I mean, imagine the chaos in every individual Christian, or even if every individual church was put in place by God to make those sort of decisions, even just in a country level, let alone a worldwide level. It would be chaos. No, God has been gracious to us. He has freed us from that chaos, freed us from even worry and concern and responsibility by giving all of that to earthly governments to rule. Even when they're not very good at it, even if they're motivated by sinful gain, our call is to be subject to them. I mean, after all, think about Crete at this time. It wasn't exactly a political haven where everybody loved the rulers. Uh, I'm not quite sure uh, when this happened, but it, around this time, probably before the letter was written, the Roman Empire had taken over or were taking over the island of Crete. And I suspect Crete were dealing with uh, all sorts of political problems and questions and decisions and challenges that they were facing at the time. It was far from secure and free as we experience in this country today. And so the command to show our godliness uh, to the government is a matter that stands, I think, uh, for us. Uh, secondly, then, uh, we should be subject to the government. Secondly, we should be demonstrating our godliness to everyone else. So have a look at the second part of verse one and two. Be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always be gentle towards everyone. Uh, we'll talk briefly in a minute what uh, doing whatever is good. We'll come back to that. But before we do, uh, there are those four godly characteristics that we see in the second part of that verse that I think we, it's just a helpful reminder to use as a sieve over our mouths and our actions. In other words, nothing but uh, th these things or nothing but the positive of these things should come out of our mouths or out of our actions. So we are to, according to this verse, to slander no one, to be peaceable, to be considerate, and to be gentle. I'm not going to say much about that, but perhaps there are four things you can pray about and think about from your own life and whether your life should look different thinking about those things. So pray about them this week. Slander no one, be peaceable, be considerate, be gentle. Uh, the instruction to be ready to do whatever is good is an opportunity, I think, for, uh, for us to shine as a church, as a community for Jesus. We are supposed to be ready. In other words, where there is a need, we are to do whatever is good. Uh, it might be small things, helping an elderly neighbour with their shopping or, uh, or helping someone who's isolating with their shopping this year, befriending someone who is lonely uh, or new to your street. It might be church-run initiatives, responding to uh, felt needs in the communities. Uh, that's why we have an Engage the Community Ministry here at Grace Church. Uh, some are involved in CAC, Christians Against Poverty, and the Food Bank and Marriage Courses. It's why Adam, who's been running the bereavement course is now thinking with those in that group whether it's something they can offer in a similar way to the community to meet 
a felt need, ready to do what is good. It's why I hope many of us are involved in our communities uh, in all sorts of environments, school governors, befriending the elderly, uh, volunteering at the cricket club, uh, volunteering generally, wh whatever it might be. This is a godly way to live. And as we saw last week, uh, behaving in a godly way will attract those who don't believe to our saviour. This sort of behaviour will attract others to our saviour. And that, after all, is the greatest need for all humanity. We needed the cat last week and the pigeon came. Um, and as if on cue, uh, Paul now goes on to this uh, verse 3 to 8 to actually describe these, this need that everyone has. Okay, So we're to behave like that before our government, before those who don't believe to our society. And this is partly why, and this is our theological basis, if you like, for why we behave in a godly way, for verses 3 to 8. And now Jesus, God's son, uh, doesn't need much picking up, does he? Uh, if we know who he is, that's pretty epic. He's the creator, the sustainer, the God of the universe. He doesn't really need uh, any more than that. But given that very short point about who he is, it makes his interest in us all the more incredible, doesn't it? So have a look at verse Remember that need that we said all people have? Verse 3, we're not excluded or weren't excluded. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Another uh, culture on Crete at this time, not only was politically it was a mess, but uh, morally it was a mess. It, it was a godless place. It wasn't. Other, it was an unpleasant place to live by all accounts of other historical documents from this time. But this is not verse three, just a description of Crete. Paul says we, in other words, him and all Christians uh, from then even till today. This is the state of everybody before conversion, before Jesus. Foolish disobedient, deceived, enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Uh, people who lived for their own pleasure, or why wouldn't we don't believe in God? Foolish, for as we look back as Christians, we, at our old, li old lives, we see how sad and foolish our lives were without Jesus. How disobedient we were before God how enslaved we were to certain controls in our lives. We were deceived by the devil and the world, believing that lie as if it was the best or only option before us. And as, as such, we were haters and we were hated. It's not hard to see these characteristics across the world, is it? Constant disagreements on every street corner, arguments, protests, slandering, anger, wars, Spend five minutes on a school WhatsApp group and you'll see this kind of hatred uh, immediately. Our South African friends will know the sad reality of this chaos and sadness and anger in our world as their home country is being burned and looted to the ground. We too were like this, says Paul. That, that is our reminder. We might not be looting and burning things, but our minds and our attitudes towards God we're just as bad, says Paul. It's what theologically we call 
total depravity or the idea of original sin. It's what we are. Every human is like this before God. We, we can't do anything but be depraved, sinful, uh, angry, foolish, hated, haters. We're enslaved to the devil. And there's nothing we can do about it. It is who we are or it is who we were if we don't believe. Sorry, if we now believe. Which makes the next verse and the enormity of God's grace even more extraordinary. That's our starting point. Every person's starting point without Jesus in the entire world since Paul till today. Verse 4. But when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things we have done. We just heard how bad we were. But because of his mercy, he saved us through the washing of rebirth and the renewal by the Holy Spirit. It is God's kindness that saves us for himself, from ourselves, from the right judgment that we deserved before God. Not because of anything we have done, righteous or otherwise. And a Christian is simply someone who has benefited from the kindness of God. We weren't special, we weren't extra good, we didn't tick enough boxes. We're simply someone who has benefited from the kindness of God, who acknowledges that we were foolish and deceived and haters by, by default, by birth. Which is why we need a rebirth, as we saw there, a washing, a rebirth by the Holy Spirit. You see, we no longer belong to our sinful nature, the way we were born. Uh, we have been renewed. We have been born again by the Spirit. We have been uh, made pure, he says in verse 5, washed clean through Jesus, renewed. This is extraordinary grace, totally undeserved. The Holy Spirit, we're told, changes our hearts so that we can accept the grace of God, who renews us into life in Christ. It is the fullest and greatest uh, gift available to humanity who are literally dead in their sin without him. Uh, listen how Paul again describes the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives in verse 5, uh, second part. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our saviour. And the idea that the spirit is poured out uh, brings up that the biblical imagery of being poured out like a drink offering, fully and completely. Nothing of God's grace of his spirit is held back. It is poured out on us. There's nothing left to give of the spirit. He is on us, in us. And you can't put it, uh, you can't put something you poured out back into the jar, can you? I mean, unless you pour it in another jar, but don't push the illustration too far. How generous and lavish is God's grace and his love by giving his spirit to us. You see, over time, our godliness may increase. Over time, our knowledge and our love of God may improve over time. But the pouring out of God's spirit is full and generous at the moment of salvation. It is a rebirth, a renewal. It happens and it is done and he lives in us. We are new, reborn. We are changed. We are pure. We are righteous. In Christ. It's an extraordinary uh, picture. And we get a picture of the whole Trinity of God at work in these verses. You see, it is for the glory of God the Father. He seems to be the one that Paul is referring to as the one who saves us. God the Father is our Savior because He instigates it all. It's for His glory. 
It's through the indwelling, change, changing work of the Holy Spirit that opens our eyes to what? To the work of Jesus, through whom we are literally mechanically saved, if you like. He died on the cross in our place to take the punishment we deserve before God, and so that we are saved by grace through the work of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It should be hard to doubt from these verses that God loves us. It's extraordinary. And if we are saved from judgment, what are we saved into? Verse 7, so that having been justified by grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. The glory of eternal life with God awaits us. It is a sure hope. It is our goal, our dream, our aim. It is certain and secure. We have the spirit who lives in us fully as a deposit and a guarantee. It's good news. And so far, it sounds very familiar and wonderful. And it's good news. And we call it the gospel, which literally means good news. But Paul doesn't actually stop right there. He takes us further. Remember, this is not just a theology of the gospel or of salvation. This is a theology of godliness. This, everything we've just considered, Paul says, verse 8, this, verse 8, is a trustworthy saying, so everything I've just told you, and I want you to stress these things, telling Titus, tell the church, remind them what I've just told you, so that when those who have trusted God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. We are generously loved, unconditionally saved, saved through grace, not works. The Spirit changes our hearts. He gives us new birth. He renews our minds so that we are now, now aware of God. We are able to respond to God and benefit from his righteousness. We're saved through grace so that we can devote ourselves to good works. An extraordinary uh, paragraph. And it should be obvious, shouldn't it? But it sometimes needs to be said. Salvation, therefore, God's work in our lives, is a now and not yet experience. I say obvious because if you look at your lives and look at uh, what's going on around, uh, and if you look at the fact that Paul is telling Titus to teach the Christians that they need to work at godliness, they need to do certain things and behave in certain ways, it should be obvious that Christians are not living in a perfectly pure and righteous way in this life. We have the work of our trying God that makes us pure in Christ, yes. Uh, God sees us as pure through the grace of Jesus as guaranteed by the Spirit, but we do not yet act in all purity at all times. We are no longer slaves to sin, to our sinful nature, because we've been reborn to that, but we still sin. We are no longer condemned by God's law, which we cannot keep, but we still break the law. If you like, our position is one of purity and righteousness through the work of Christ. Until, but until he returns and appears again to rid us and our world of all evil, then our practice is one that needs to keep working at godliness. You see that? Our position is one of perfection and righteousness and glory before God through the work of Christ. But our practice is not yet there until Christ returns. And so we work at our godliness. That is what we are saved for in the present age, as we saw last week in chapter 2, to work at our godliness. And so, with the help of the Spirit who lives fully in us, we devote ourselves to doing what is good to godliness. There's our theology of godliness. Uh, final comments, and a much shorter point uh, from Paul as we 
uh, finish this book. He comes full circle at the end here uh, with Titus and takes him back again to those who are trying to disrupt that sound teaching, the truth, the word of God, uh, by foolish and pointless arguments. Have a look at verse 9. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law, because these are unprofitable and useless. Obviously, Paul is not saying we shouldn't defend sound doctrine and truth. That is the whole point of his book. That is exactly what we should be defending. His point is that we, that if we, uh, his point is that if some try to teach or misguide from a true doctrine that has been agreed upon by the elders of the church who are being faithful to the truth of the Bible alone, then endless unprofitable and useless arguments should be avoided. Uh, so in Crete, it was teachings about uh, the law, obedience to the law, that might be able to save you, a sort of a, a, a Jesus and, or maybe just obedience and not Jesus. Uh, uh, clearly something was going on related to genealogies as well. Today, it might be those who say that Jesus isn't the only way to God. I mean, how, how narrow-minded could you be? There must, there's other ways, there's other religions of just being a good person. Or it might be someone saying they believe the gospel, but utterly denying the truth of the Bible on um, some core issues. Of course, we teach on all these things. Of course, we want to know what the Bible says because we need the truth that leads to godliness. It should impact on our lives. But we will not tolerate, says Paul, in the church, ongoing divisiveness and quarreling about such issues within a church context, for it will harm the faith of many, as we saw in chapter one, it was leading households astray and concerning their faith. And this is what uh, the elders should do, chapter three, verse 10, uh, with someone who continually stands against sound teaching, warn a divisive person once, and then warn them a second time after that, have nothing to do with them. Perhaps one of the hardest roles of an elder uh, is not just to protect the truth through teaching, but also to remove the threats to sound doctrine as well. It'd be something to pray for for us as a church. But that is how important the truth of the Bible is to God's people, both for salvation and for godliness, for the glory of God. So there it is. Uh, I'll whistle stop tour through Titus. Uh, lots to think about. Loads of it's like a contents page for uh, living a Christian life. I think we said at the beginning. Uh, so lots of things will have come up. And if you want to talk about any of those topics or issues that we've discussed, then talk about it in home group. Talk about, talk about it with each other. Talk to an elder or staff member uh, and, and uh, contact us if you want to think more about some of these issues. Uh, but for now, uh, let's commit our lives to the truth that leads to godliness. Uh, thanking God for his salvation through Jesus, his grace that saves us so that we can live this life uh, striving after godliness for his glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, your truth that leads to godliness. Thank you for saving us when we deserve no, no such thing. Thank you that you love us. You saved us from enslavement to sin and the devil, from foolishness and deception, from anger and hatred. Thank you that you save us into new life, new birth, renewal by your spirit. Thank you, you live in our hearts, and nothing can take that away for it is your work alone. Help us by your spirit in response to strive to live in this time 
a life of godliness that brings glory to you, that attracts others to our Saviour, Jesus, and that honours all that he's done for us as we look forward to the blessed hope and assurance of glory that is to come at the second period of Christ. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.